The Arabian Nights. Good evening, dear listeners, and welcome to Sci-Fi Tales. Today we embark on a thrilling adventure as we continue our journey through the Arabian Nights with the legendary Sinbad the Sailor and his sixth voyage. Prepare yourselves for an extraordinary bedtime story that will whisk you away to distant lands, and I guarantee it will have you drifting into slumber in no time. It must be a marvel to you how, after having five times met with shipwreck and unheard of perils, I could again tempt fortune and risk fresh trouble. I am even surprised myself when I look back, but evidently it was my fate to rove, and after a year of repose, I prepared to make a sixth voyage, regardless of the entreaties of my friends and relations, who did all they could to keep me at home. Instead of going by the Persian Gulf, I travelled a considerable way overland, and finally embarked from a distant Indian port with a captain who meant to make a long voyage. And truly he did so, for we fell in with stormy weather, which drove us completely out of our course, so that for many days neither captain nor pilot knew where we were, nor where we were going. When they did at last discover our position, we had small ground for rejoicing. For the captain, casting his turban upon the deck and tearing his beard, declared that we were in the most dangerous spot upon the whole wide sea, and had been caught by a current, which was at that minute sweeping us to destruction. It was too true. In spite of all the sailors could do, we were driven with frightful rapidity towards the foot of a mountain, which rose sheer out of the sea, and our vessel was dashed to pieces upon the rocks at its base. Not, however, until we had managed to scramble on shore, carrying with us the most precious of our possessions. When we had done this, the captain said to us, Now we are here, we may as well begin to dig our graves at once, since from this fatal spot no shipwrecked mariner has ever returned. This speech discouraged us much, and we began to lament over our sad fate. The mountain formed the seaward boundary of a large island, and the narrow strip of rocky shore upon which we stood was strewn with the wreckage of a thousand gallant ships, while the bones of the luckless mariners shone white in the sunshine, and we shuddered to think how soon our own would be added to the heap. All around, too, lay vast quantities of the costliest merchandise, and treasures were heaped in every cranny of the rocks, but all these things only added to the desolation of the scene. It struck me as a very strange thing that a river of clear, fresh water, which gushed out from the mountain not far from where we stood, instead of flowing into the sea as rivers generally do, turned off sharply, and flowed out of sight under a natural archway of rock. And when I went to examine it more closely, I found that inside the cave the walls were thick with diamonds and rubies and masses of crystal and the floor was strewn with ambergris. Here then, upon this desolate shore, we abandoned ourselves to our fate, for there was no possibility of scaling the mountain and if a ship had appeared it could only have shared our doom. The first thing our captain did was to divide equally among us all the food we possessed and then the length of each man's life depended on the time he could make his portion last. I myself could live upon very little. Nevertheless, by the time I had buried the last of my companions, my stock of provisions was so small that I hardly thought I should live long enough to dig my own grave, which I set about doing, while I regretted bitterly the roving disposition which was always bringing me into such straits, and thought longingly of all the comfort and luxury that I had left. But luckily for me, the fancy took me to stand once more beside the river, where it plunged out of sight in the depths of the cavern, and as I did so, 
An idea struck me. This river, which hid itself underground, doubtless emerged again at some distant spot. Why should I not build a raft and trust myself to its swiftly flowing waters? If I perished before I could reach the light of day once more, I should be no worse off than I was now, for death stared me in the face, while there was always the possibility that, as I was born under a lucky star, I might find myself safe and sound in some desirable land. I decided, at any rate, to risk it, and speedily built myself a stout raft of driftwood with strong cords, of which enough and to spare lay strewn upon the beach. I then made up many packages of rubies, emeralds, rock crystal, ambergris and precious stuffs, and bound them upon my raft, being careful to preserve the balance. And then I seated myself upon it, having two small oars that I had fashioned laid ready to my hand, and loosed the cord which held it to the bank. Once out in the current, my raft flew swiftly under the gloomy archway, and I found myself in total darkness, carried smoothly forward by the rapid river. On I went, as it seemed to me, for many nights and days. Once the channel became so small that I had a narrow escape of being crushed against the rocky roof, and after that I took the precaution of lying flat upon my precious bales. Though I only ate what was absolutely necessary to keep myself alive, the inevitable moment came when, after swallowing my last morsel of food, I began to wonder if I must after all die of hunger. Then, worn out with anxiety and fatigue, I fell into a deep sleep, and when I again opened my eyes, I was once more in the light of day. A beautiful country lay before me, and my raft, which was tied to the riverbank, was surrounded by friendly-looking black men. I rose and saluted them, and they spoke to me in return, but I could not understand a word of their language. Feeling perfectly bewildered by my sudden return to life and light, I murmured to myself in Arabic, close your eyes, and while you are asleep, Heaven will change your fortune from evil to good. One of the natives, who understood this tongue, then came forward saying, My brother, be not surprised to see us. This is our land, and as we came to get water from the river, we noticed your raft floating down it, and one of us swam out and brought you to the shore. We have waited for your awakening. Tell us now whence you come and where you were going by that dangerous way. I replied that nothing would please me better than to tell them, but that I was starving and would fain eat something first. I was soon supplied with all I needed, and having satisfied my hunger, I told them faithfully all that had befallen me. They were lost in wonder at my tale when it was interpreted to them, and said that adventures so surprising must be related to their king only by the man to whom they had happened. So, procuring a horse, they mounted me upon it, and we set out followed by several strong men carrying my raft just as it was upon their shoulders. In this order we marched into the city of Serendib, where the natives presented me to their king, whom I saluted in the Indian fashion, prostrating myself at his feet and kissing the ground. But the monarch bade me rise and sit beside him, asking first what was my name. I am Sinbad, I replied, whom men call the sailor, for I have voyaged much upon many seas. And how come you here? asked the king. I told my story, concealing nothing, and his surprise and delight were so great that he ordered my adventures to be written in letters of gold and laid up in the archives of his kingdom. Presently, my raft was brought in, and the bales opened in his presence, and the king declared that in all his treasury there were no such rubies and emeralds as those which lay in great heaps before him. Seeing that he looked at them with interest, 
I ventured to say that I myself and all that I had were at his disposal. But he answered me smiling, Nay, Sinbad, heaven forbid that I should covet your riches. I will rather add to them, for I desire that you shall not leave my kingdom without some tokens of my goodwill. He then commanded his officers to provide me with a suitable lodging at his expense, and sent slaves to wait upon me and carry my raft and my bales to my new dwelling place. You may imagine that I praised his generosity and gave him grateful thanks, nor did I fail to present myself daily in his audience chamber, and for the rest of my time I amused myself in seeing all that was most worthy of attention in the city. The island of Serendib being situated on the equinoctial line, the days and nights there are of equal length. The chief city is placed at the end of a beautiful valley, formed by the highest mountain in the world, which is in the middle of the island. I had the curiosity to ascend to its very summit, for this was the place to which Adam was banished out of paradise. Here are found rubies and many precious things, and rare plants grow abundantly with cedar trees and cocoa palms. On the seashore and at the mouths of the rivers, the divers seek for pearls, and in some valleys diamonds are plentiful. After many days I petitioned the king that I might return to my own country, to which he graciously consented. Moreover, he loaded me with rich gifts, and when I went to take leave of him, he entrusted me with a royal present and a letter to the commander of the faithful, our sovereign lord, saying, I pray you give these to the Caliph Harun al-Rashid and assure him of my friendship. I accepted the charge respectfully and soon embarked upon the vessel which the king himself had chosen for me. The king's letter was written in blue characters upon a rare and precious skin of yellowish colour, and these were the words of it. The king of the Indies, before whom walk a thousand elephants, who lives in a palace, of which the roof blazes with a hundred thousand rubies, and whose treasure house contains twenty thousand diamond crowns. To the caliph, Harun al-Rashid sends greeting. Though the offering we present to you is unworthy of your notice, we pray you to accept it as a mark of the esteem and friendship which we cherish for you, and of which we gladly send you this token. And we ask of you a like regard if you deem us worthy of it. Adieu, brother. The present consisted of a vase carved from a single ruby, six inches high and as thick as my finger. This was filled with the choicest pearls, large and of perfect shape and luster. Secondly, a huge snakeskin with scales as large as a sequin, which would preserve from sickness those who slept upon it. Then quantities of aloes wood, camphor and pistachio nuts. And lastly, a beautiful slave girl, whose robes glittered with precious stones. After a long and prosperous voyage, we landed at Balsora, and I made haste to reach Baghdad, and taking the king's letter, I presented myself at the palace gate, followed by the beautiful slave and various members of my own family bearing the treasure. As soon as I had declared my errand, I was conducted into the presence of the caliph, to whom, after I had made my obeisance, I gave the letter and the king's gift. And when he had examined them, he demanded of me whether the prince of Serendib was really as rich and powerful as he claimed to be. Commander of the faithful, I replied, again bowing humbly before him. I can assure your majesty that he has in no way exaggerated his wealth and grandeur. Nothing can equal the magnificence of his palace. When he goes abroad, his throne is prepared upon the back of an elephant, and on either side of him ride his ministers, his favourites and courtiers. On his elephant's neck sits an officer, his golden lance in his hand, and behind him stands another, bearing a pillar of gold 
at the top of which is an emerald as long as my hand. A thousand men in cloth of gold, mounted upon richly caparisoned elephants, go before him. And as the procession moves onward, the officer who guides his elephant cries aloud, Behold the mighty monarch, the powerful and valiant Sultan of the Indies, whose palace is covered with a hundred thousand rubies, who possesses twenty thousand diamond crowns. Behold a monarch greater than Solomon and Mirajay in all their glory. Then the one who stands behind the throne answers, This king so great and powerful must die, must die, must die. And the first takes up the chant again, All praise to him who lives for evermore. Further, my lord, in Serendip no judge is needed, for to the king himself his people come for justice. The caliph was well satisfied with my report. From the king's letter, said he, I judge that he was a wise man. It seems that he is worthy of his people, and his people of him. So saying, he dismissed me with rich presents, and I returned in peace to my own house. When Sinbad had done speaking, his guests withdrew, Hinbad having first received a hundred sequins, but all returned next day to hear the story of the seventh voyage. Sinbad thus began. After my sixth voyage, I was quite determined that I would go to sea no more. I was now of an age to appreciate a quiet life, and I had run risks enough. I only wished to end my days in peace. One day, however, when I was entertaining a number of my friends, I was told that an officer of the Caliph wished to speak to me, and when he was admitted, he bade me follow him into the presence of Harun al-Rashid, which I accordingly did. After I had saluted him, the Caliph said, I have sent for you, Sinbad, because I need your services. I have chosen you to bear a letter and a gift to the King of Serendib in return for his message of friendship. The Caliph's commandment fell upon me like a thunderbolt. Commander of the Faithful, I answered, I am ready to do all that your majesty commands, but I humbly pray you to remember that I am utterly disheartened by the unheard of sufferings I have undergone. Indeed, I have made a vow never again to leave Baghdad. With this, I gave him a long account of some of my strangest adventures, to which he listened patiently. I admit, said he, that you have indeed had some extraordinary experiences, but I do not see why they should hinder you from doing as I wish. You have only to go straight to Serendib and give my message. Then you are free to come back and do as you will. But go you must. My honour and dignity demand it. Seeing that there was no help for it, I declared myself willing to obey, and the caliph, delighted at having got his own way, gave me a thousand sequins for the expenses of the voyage. I was soon ready to start, and taking the letter and the present, I embarked at Balsora, and sailed quickly and safely to Serendib. Here, when I had disclosed my errand, I was well received and brought into the presence of the king, who greeted me with joy. Welcome, Sinbad, he cried. I have thought of you often, and rejoice to see you once more. After thanking him for the honour that he did me, I displayed the caliph's gifts. First a bed with complete hangings all cloth of gold, which cost a thousand sequins, and another like to it of crimson stuff. Fifty robes of rich embroidery, a hundred of the finest white linen from Cairo, Suez, Kufa and Alexandria. Then more beds of different fashion, and an agate vase carved with the figure of a man aiming an arrow at a lion, and finally a costly table, which had once belonged to King Solomon. The King of Serendib received with satisfaction 
the assurance of the caliph's friendliness toward him, and now my task being accomplished, I was anxious to depart, but it was some time before the king would think of letting me go. At last, however, he dismissed me with many presents, and I lost no time in going on board a ship, which sailed at once, and for four days all went well. On the fifth day, we had the misfortune to fall in with pirates, who seized our vessel, killing all who resisted, and making prisoners of those who were prudent enough to submit at once of whom I was one. When they had despoiled us of all we possessed, they forced us to put on vile raiment, and sailing to a distant island, there sold us for slaves. I fell into the hands of a rich merchant, who took me home with him, and clothed and fed me well, and after some days sent for me, and questioned me as to what I could do. I answered that I was a rich merchant who had been captured by pirates, and therefore I knew no trade. Tell me, said he, can you shoot with a bow? I replied that this had been one of the pastimes of my youth, and that doubtless with practice my skill would come back to me. Upon this he provided me with a bow and arrows, and mounting me with him upon his own elephant, took the way to a vast forest which lay far from the town. When we had reached the wildest part of it, we stopped, and my master said to me, This forest swarms with elephants. Hide yourself in this great tree, and shoot at all that pass you. When you have succeeded in killing one, come and tell me. So saying, he gave me a supply of food, and returned to the town, and I perched myself high up in the tree, and kept watch. That night, I saw nothing, but just after sunrise the next morning, a large herd of elephants came crashing and trampling by. I lost no time in letting fly several arrows, and at last one of the great animals fell to the ground dead, and the others retreated, leaving me free to come down from my hiding place and run back to tell my master of my success, for which I was praised and regaled with good things. Then we went back to the forest together and dug a mighty trench in which we buried the elephant I had killed, in order that when it became a skeleton, my master might return and secure its tusks. For two months I hunted thus, and no day passed without my securing an elephant. Of course I did not always station myself in the same tree, but sometimes in one place, sometimes in another. One morning as I watched the coming of the elephants, I was surprised to see that, instead of passing the tree I was in, as they usually did, they paused and completely surrounded it, trumpeting horribly and shaking the very ground with their heavy tread. And when I saw that their eyes were fixed upon me, I was terrified and my arrows dropped from my trembling hand. I had indeed good reason for my terror when, an instant later, the largest of the animals wound his trunk round the stem of my tree and with one mighty effort tore it up by the roots, bringing me to the ground entangled in its branches. I thought now that my last hour was surely come, but the huge creature, picking me up gently enough, set me upon its back, where I clung more dead than alive, and followed by the whole herd, turned and crashed off into the dense forest. It seemed to me a long time before I was once more set upon my feet by the elephant, and I stood as if in a dream watching the herd, which turned and trampled off in another direction, and were soon hidden in the dense underwood. Then, recovering myself, I looked about me, and found that I was standing upon the side of a great hill, strewn as far as I could see on either hand, with bones and tusks of elephants. This then must be the elephant's burying place, I said to myself, and they must have brought me here that I might cease to persecute them, 
seeing that I want nothing but their tusks, and here lie more than I could carry away in a lifetime. Whereupon I turned and made for the city as fast as I could go, not seeing a single elephant by the way, which convinced me that they had retired deeper into the forest to leave the way open to the ivory hill, and I did not know how sufficiently to admire their sagacity. After a day and a night I reached my master's house, and was received by him with joyful surprise. Ah, poor Sinbad, he cried. I was wondering what could have become of you. When I went to the forest, I found the tree newly uprooted, and the arrows lying beside it, and I feared I should never see you again. Pray tell me how you escaped death. I soon satisfied his curiosity, and the next day we went together to the ivory hill, and he was overjoyed to find that I had told him nothing but the truth. When we had loaded our elephant with as many tusks as it could carry, and were on our way back to the city, he said, My brother, since I can no longer treat as a slave, one who has enriched me, thus, take your liberty and may heaven prosper you. I will no longer conceal from you that these wild elephants have killed numbers of our slaves every year. No matter what good advice we gave them, they were caught sooner or later. You alone have escaped the wiles of these animals, therefore you must be under the special protection of heaven. Now through you the whole town will be enriched without further loss of life. Therefore, you shall not only receive your liberty, but I will also bestow a fortune upon you. To which I replied, Master, I thank you, and wish you all prosperity. For myself I only ask liberty to return to my own country. It is well, he answered. The monsoon will soon bring the ivory ships hither. Then I will send you on your way with somewhat to pay your passage. So I stayed with him till the time of the monsoon, and every day we added to our store of ivory till all his warehouses were overflowing with it. By this time, the other merchants knew the secret, but there was enough and to spare for all. When the ships at last arrived, my master himself chose the one in which I was to sail and put on board for me a great store of choice provisions, also ivory in abundance, and all the costliest curiosities of the country, for which I could not thank him enough. And so we parted. I left the ship at the first port we came to, not feeling at ease upon the sea after all that had happened to me by reason of it, and having disposed of my ivory for much gold, and bought many rare and costly presents, I loaded my pack animals and joined a caravan of merchants. Our journey was long and tedious, but I bore it patiently, reflecting that at least I had not to fear tempests, nor pirates, nor serpents nor any of the other perils from which I had suffered before, and at length we reached Baghdad. My first care was to present myself before the Caliph, and give him an account of my embassy. He assured me that my long absence had disquieted him much, but he had nevertheless hoped for the best. As to my adventure among the elephants, he heard it with amazement, declaring that he could not have believed it had not my truthfulness been well known to him. By his orders, this story and the others I had told him were written by his scribes in letters of gold and laid up among his treasures. I took my leave of him, well satisfied with the honours and rewards he bestowed upon me, and since that time I have rested from my labours and given myself up wholly to my family and my friends. Thus Sindbad ended the story of his seventh and last voyage, and turning to Hindbad he added, Well, my friend, and what do you think now? Have you ever heard of anyone who has suffered more or had more narrow escapes than I have? Is it not just that I should now enjoy a life of ease and tranquillity? Hindbad drew near, and kissing his hand respectfully replied, Sir, 
You have indeed known fearful perils. My troubles have been nothing compared to yours. Moreover, the generous use you make of your wealth proves that you deserve it. May you live long and happily in the enjoyment in it. Sinbad then gave him a hundred sequins, and henceforward counted him among his friends. Also he caused him to give up his profession as a porter, and to eat daily at his table that he might all his life remember Sinbad the sailor.